Welcome to the Gym Heroes Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Peacock. Today's show is brought to you by Gymdesk, the easiest gym management software you'll ever use. Take payments, create marketing automations, track attendance, and much more. To try the software out free, go to gymdesk.com. No credit card or painful sales call required. Our hero today is Philip Payne, owner of Maple Martial Arts and holder of a master's degree in sports coaching. In this episode, we talk about the pros and cons of linear, rotating, and spiraling curriculum structures, as well as infusing physical literacy concepts into your programs. While Philip works primarily with martial arts, these concepts apply across sports to gymnastics, dance, baseball, and beyond. So without further ado, Philip Payne. There we go. Cool. All right. So I'm just going to jump in and ask you, um, <clears throat> what, what's your background in martial arts? Well, who are you? What's your background in martial arts? Um, as well as um, we're going to be talking about curriculum and stuff today. So like, what, what's your background in like learning or ed- education, whatever your background is, like educational psychology and stuff like that? Um, so my name's Phil Payne. I've been a martial arts coach since... 1996, um, a few years now. Um, I used to work in IT full-time, but then I, I sort of gave that up and threw it all in to go full-time with the martial arts for about 2008. Nice. Um, I opened my first full-time venue in 2009, and then a second one in 2014. So we've run two now with about, between the two, about 60 classes a week and about 500 students, something like that. Out of the 60 classes, I only teach about six of them, though. <laughs> um, I don't have time to do that and everything else as well. So right. uh, I, I'll limit my coaching to the stuff that I actually, you know, I enjoy teaching. So that's what I'm doing now. Now, alongside that, um, I'm also and have been for quite some time back at university studying again. The first mm-hmm. time around, it was in uh, computing and IT. Mm-hmm. Um, long, long time ago. Um, and then uh, more recently, I did a foundation. In fact, I did uh, a, a personal training course, first of all, level three. And then I went on to uh, a foundation degree in coaching and performance management at a local college. And then from that, that got me into doing a top up year to make it a, a, an honours BSc at um, Leeds Beckett or Leeds Met, as it was at the time. And then from there, I ended up uh, a couple of years later going on to do a, a part-time master's in sports coaching. Um, and then I did nothing for a few years in terms of the academic stuff other than um, working on what I wanted to implement within my club from what I've learned in the past. Uh, but now I'm doing a, a what they call a professional doctorate. Um, oh, awesome. Which is similar to the um phd i did look at a phd um but the thought of um, spending six years of my life researching to provide something for research to read to get a job within research <laughs> had no appeal to me whatsoever you know two <laughs> yeah. or three people might read your paper so the professional doctorate yeah. which is the same level eight doctorate as the phd but rather than being uh, an academic as such you're a practitioner that just happens to research mm-hmm. um, so that's the way that I thought I could have a, a better impact on our industry and our sector rather than just producing it for researchers 
That's awesome. Is that a doctor of education you're doing or something? Uh, yeah, it's a, a doctor doctor of professional practice. Oh, okay. That must be something you have overseas. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I've ever heard that this, over here. Yeah, it's similar to what you're talking about, doctor of education. Um, there's, there's, I think there's at least three um, doctorate level level eights. Um, so you still get the doctor title and everything, but mm-hmm. um, it's just a bit more meaningful in terms of having impact within your industry as a practitioner. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you still get to research as well, uh, but you just get to direct it a little bit more. <laughs> that, yeah, that's very cool. So I guess it's, it's more it's more oriented towards the practice of it than the expanding theories and and yeah, um, you're still using yeah. the theories and you're mm-hmm. still using the uh, the research exactly the same. It's just that, like you said, you know, you you're putting it into practice and you're looking at practice and analyzing practice mm-hmm. um, and seeing how the research can affect practice. Where a lot of the time with academic research, it just gets done and then that's the job ended, then it's finished. Yeah. Um, whereas I'm, what I'm looking at doing is um, trying to take uh, something called the physical literacy framework and then looking through that as a lens to see how we can impact children's martial arts so that they continue not only to train within the martial arts, but continue to take part in um, sport and physical activity for life, really. That's the that's the end result, keeping awesome. them in sport and physical activity. Yeah, that's a great thing to focus on. Very cool. Well, along along with that, so today I, I stumbled across, um, I believe it's Maple Martial Arts. Is that what the name of your... <laughs> so the you've heard me mention already the physical literacy. Yeah. Um, so Maple is something I came up with a couple of years ago. So the actual study that I'm doing within um, the prof doc, uh, the professional doctorate, is around using physical literacy within martial arts um, framework. And the idea yeah. is to produce an engine of sorts, whether it's through courses or memberships, that people can take their um, technical aspects of their martial art and then drop it in around the framework that we've got. So that it's not only delivering the technical aspects, but it's delivering on the physical, psychological, or social as well. And then that that makes more sense then when you understand that MAPLE stands for Martial Arts Physical Literacy Engine. Cool. Very so that's cool. That's where the bit comes from. <laughs> yeah. So your website's got a bunch of great articles on it. Um, there's too many cool articles to cover today, but today we're going to focus on some of the curriculum stuff. And uh, so you you wrote a great article on uh, linear curriculums, rotating curriculums, and nested rotating curriculums. Now, I've seen linear and rotating curriculums covered in martial arts, but nested rotating curriculums I have not seen covered before in an article there maybe there's another one out there but i haven't seen it yet um so that was really interesting to me go ahead Uh, when i wrote that article there was somebody that popped up and said oh we've been doing something similar for years um but that was probably on the comment that i had um in the uk uh, most people use the standard linear curriculum yeah and, and that's okay for smaller classes but where you've got larger classes or you've got younger children mm. it's uh, a lot harder to implement without having a an army of people to help uh, run the class really yeah uh, now i know that in the states they've used rotating curriculum for quite a long time um, dating back to the 80s probably some of them um, but over yeah. here it's not so prevalent so rotating curriculum was a a really good idea but we've had a, quite a bit of pushback in the uk um to it but like anything, the, these things that come through the US tend to take a bit of time to circulate within the UK as well. Uh, yeah. So 
it's happening. It's happening. There is people using the uh, rotating curriculum now. And the idea behind the nested rotating curriculum was to, when I saw the rotating curriculum, I didn't, I wasn't keen on the way that it focused everything just on this, these set of techniques for three months, if you like. Mm-hmm. So the content was sort of fixed for three months. And I thought that by the time they rotate through, if they've got a full cycle of say two years, then you know, it's, it's been a long time since they've done the other aspects of the curriculum. Mm. Now, instructors might just throw some extra techniques in now and again, but I thought, what would be a really structured way of looking at this? So that's when we came up with the nested rotating curriculum, um, which is basically where you've got your normal rotating curriculum content that you've got for the next grading, if you like, but at the same time, you rotate through the rest of the syllabus. So that gives you a a sort of uh, not only is it good for novelty wise in terms of keeping the kids engaged but also as well um when you're looking at um uh, spacing and having your content revisited um like this on a regular basis then yeah. the recall factor has an impact on long-term retention then in terms of memory retention. yeah the space uh, so learning effect Exactly that, yeah, yeah, exactly that. So that's that's how I came up with it um, and put that together. So it helped with engagement, but also helped to the side effect with the long-term retention of the, the, the techniques and not just the techniques, um, because I include the physical stuff in there as well, just on a, a more fluid basis, a faster basis, if you like. Mm-hmm. So for those that aren't familiar, how does how does a linear curriculum work? I know probably most people know it, but they don't know it by the, that name. Well, in the US, most people will know what it is. Uh, sorry, in the UK, most people will know what it is. But in the US, if they've been using normal rotating curriculum for a long time, then uh, because they've uh, maybe inherited that from their past instructor, then they may mm-hmm. not know. Um, but over here, a linear curriculum is where you take um, your curriculum out for, say, white belt to black belt, and then you put it in order and you put the harder stuff at the end and usually the more exciting stuff and then the easier stuff and more accessible stuff at the beginning. And then you you have to pass the first um, grade before you can then move on to the second part of the curriculum, if you like. Um, and while it can work well for smaller classes, the problem that you get is if you've got a class that goes from white belt to black belt, then you've got everything in between to teach in one class. So even if you rotate through your subject areas, um, for instance, you do sparring on this rotation, you do um, say kata, patterns, whatever you want to call it on the other rotation, then you've still got within that class lots of different content to deliver to lots of different people. Um, one of the plus sides with the um, standard or linear curriculum though is that if somebody is not ready at that point to grade then it's very easy for them to just grade the following time so that's one of the strongest advantages that it holds um but it just makes it um, harder to teach if you like yeah absolutely so a rotating curriculum can so rotating i came up through rotating curriculum um when i when i first started learning taekwondo um so can you go over uh rotating curriculum because there actually are people in the united states that don't use rotating curriculums yet even though it's pretty popular among karate and taekwondo people so what how does a rotating curriculum fix some of those problems and what are some of the drawbacks of it so with the rotating curriculum um what tends to happen is that everybody is working on the same content. If you take your curriculum, um, if you like, and then you break it down into, say, beginner, intermediate, and advanced, 
Um, and then you concentrate on, say, just the beginner's one. And say you've got four grades within that um, cycle mm-hmm. where you've got, if you do it every three or four months, you've got that three or four month cycle where, um, a segment where you'll go through that content and then the next and then the next and then the next and then it goes back to the beginning again. Now, as each person um, achieves the next grade, then the grade is really, rather than it being a, a measure of competence like it is in the linear um, curriculum, it's more um, symbolization of how much content they've been through. So the idea being that if they come on um, segment three or segment one, it doesn't matter. After four rotations, they've still been through all that curriculum and they're still ready to move up. The benefit being, though, that within a class, you're able to deliver the same content to all the students. And also as well, um, it's a lot easier if you still do formal gradings or even if you do sort of a tag, tab, stripes or anything like that to denote how far you are through that segment, then um, it still works to your advantage that you're still testing on the same um, aspect of the same proportion of the curriculum, if you like. So it makes it a lot easier that way. Um, but some of the drawbacks of the standard rotating curriculum, which to a certain extent you still get with the nested rotating, is that if somebody's not ready or they've had some time out because they've been injured or something else and they've not covered um, enough of that curriculum to be able to test for it and say they're competent at that um, level, then they're going to have to go all the way through the curriculum and revisit an extra section, if you like, twice while missing out on one section as well. Now, I, I don't know. I know that people basically put in place sort of private sessions and makeup sessions and maybe they let them test separately on that section, but yeah. there's no real easy solution that I know of mm-hmm. um, to get rid of that problem, if you like, because the whole school, the whole club has moved on, if you like, at that stage. Yeah, I think when I was training, one of the things my instructors did, and, and if you, <laughs> it was ATA, so if you showed up to, um, to the, the grading, you would probably pass anyways. But if for some reason you didn't have enough attendance or uh, you missed the grading, they would do like a private grading or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, so there's no real, it's a bit of a, a bump that you, you know, you can't really get around. Yeah. You can't really get around. Yeah. People have to pass that segment. But I don't know, I don't know if in the UK where we've got this, um, predominantly linear systems in place Mm -hmm. that we have a lot more people that don't pass the grading every time. They don't move up a grade every time. Whereas I feel that in the US, there's a lot more of the schools that maybe they pull all the stops out to make sure that they're ready. But generally, the majority of people will move up a grade each three or four months or whatever that um, rotation is. Yeah. I've... um... There's a, there's a jiu-jitsu instructor in the Midwest of the United States <coughs> named uh, Bruce Hoyer. And he does um, the flipped class. He, he took the flipped classroom model and applied it to jiu-jitsu instruction. And so what he did was he, he restructured his classes so that everyone can be working on wherever they are at in the curriculum, um, regardless of, of who they're, they're matched with. So they do like kind of a standard warm up, and then they pair off and they'll go and, they'll, and each, each person will work through their own, uh, where they're at in the curriculum. And base, it's just based around them having looked at the material before class, or, um, sometimes they'll pull it out during that, that portion of the class. And, um, he's trying to bring in space repetition. He's trying to bring in, um, the, the, 
which I think that's kind of what the flipped classroom model is supposed to be predicated on somewhat. And uh, what he's done is actually, I mean, you could do this with a rotating curriculum, but what he's done is actually made a, a very individualized linear curriculum that can be run with larger classes. Um, and so you go exactly at your own pace. And uh, when you're ready to get tested for a stripe or, or your next belt, you just pull, you know, you put, you make sure you have your, uh, whatever requirements are in and then you just pull a instructor aside and you do it on the spot. So, so I guess it's one way to solve that problem. Is the content, um, different for each person going up a grade? How do they fix the sort of the, have a rotation, but at the same time do the individual, how does that sort of play out in practice? He has a standard curriculum mapped out and then he will tailor it for the individual person. Now he's grown so much since then. I don't know if he can still do that, but when I was talking to him, he could still do that. Yeah. So it's, it, there is some individualization there as well. I mean, that gets me onto the last part of the article, which we looked at was another concept, which has been used in education before. Um, and I haven't found out how to work that in um, totally yet. And that's the idea of a, a spiral curriculum. Spiral curriculum. Yeah, I'm not, yeah. I, I really can't. I could not tell you what is a spiral kick. So a spiral curriculum. curriculum is where you've got a specific subject area that you rotate through um, and you go through that subject area um, periodically, if you like. Mm -hmm. And as you pass back through that subject area, you increase the difficulty or you increase the intensity or you increase, there's an increment within that, if you like. Mm -hmm. So say you've got sparring, um, you'll pass through sparring and you'll be doing something at a beginner level, but the next time you pass through, you'll be doing something harder within that um, curriculum, if you like. Yeah. So it's more for a sort of subject. And I, I tend to try think of the, putting this into practice, I try think of um, differentiating for the students so that when you've got the students in the class, if they find something easy, then you need them to be, their challenge point to be a little bit higher Mm -hmm. So that you increment the difficulty of that technique. So if you're doing, say, you taekwondo background, if you've been working on um, a turning kick, it may be that you're working on now a high section turning kick or a front leg turning kick or uh, a spinning turning kick. So uh, each time you rotate through it or each time you see a student in class that needs that challenge point changing, then you make it easier, make it harder, but it still stays within the subject area. Mm -hmm. So that's something I'm, I'm trying to look at implementing within the rotating uh, the nested rotating curriculum if i can so that each of the members are challenged according to their competency levels within that grading structure nice so that that that's really cool so um yeah traditional martial arts is going to be hard for that because you have so many different areas of skill that you're that you're working through and I wouldn't say that it's hard. It's not hard to do um, as part of your coaching practice when you're in a class and you see somebody that's finding it really easy so they're not quite as engaged or they're finding it really hard, mm -hmm. um, then it's, it's quite easy to just on the spot as part of your coaching practice put something in there. It's a bit harder to plan for it. To structure it, yeah, <laughs> out, out in advance. Um, if, you um, have, if you have a taxonomy of in types of exercises and Complex, I guess a complexity you could say is the uh, correlates to difficulty in some ways. Um, you could you could probably do that, but it would be in it, it, then you have the individual element of you know some 
It's not going to be the same level of difficulty for each. It's not. Each you can do it as a you can do it as a as a coaching tool within your um, coach development, if you like. Mm-hmm. That you you teach people to differentiate um, for the students that have got in front of them. This is a huge part of co- uh, um, student centered coaching, if you like, mm-hmm. um, or child centered coaching in, in a lot of cases, where you're putting the child first and you're looking at um, what they need in terms of motivation and what you can give them individually to meet them where they are and mm-hmm. to motivate them going forwards. Um, you'll have heard of uh, self-determination theory yes, um, yeah. before. And, and obviously competence from that, autonomy, competence and relatedness. Uh, the the competent part is important within the curriculum stuff that we're talking about now. Yeah. Um, but not just that, within the class when you're coaching, um, it's really important as well. Some students need pushing a little bit more, you'll know from experience. Some people need uh, things um, turning down a, a level just to give them access to the um, the feeling of competence and progress, if you like. Mm. Absolutely. So you could use the spiraling curriculum as actually more of a mental model behind the scenes of how to approach coaching when you come back around to uh, an aspect of your, of your nested curriculum. That's, yeah, definitely. That's cool. That's cool. Um, well, you, <laughs> you'd probably need to keep notes too on, you know, when, when you were on that piece of curriculum where everyone was, um, that would be helpful. You know, you you know all you need to do is get them to do it and you'll see straight away anyway. <laughs> yeah. And that's sure. about knowing your students as well. Yeah. Um, that's why it's always difficult to have, a good understanding of each student's ability, if you like, mm-hmm. and knowing them personally when you've got huge classes. Um, this is why we tend to k- take our uh, kids' classes, uh, you know, keep them quite smallish numbers. In our three to four class, we'll have a maximum of, say, 12 students with one lead instructor and one assistant and maybe a, a volunteer as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in the five to six-year-olds, we'll usually do a maximum of um, 14, usually, um, for mm-hmm. that age group. So it's just about building that relationship with them and having an understanding of what motivates them, what they're capable of, um, so that you can nudge them when you need to and then provide scaffolding when um, they're struggling a little. Absolutely. So if if I if I wanted to create a nested curriculum, I kind of have an understanding of what how rotating curriculum works. How do I approach building a nested curriculum? First of all, you need to start um, with the technical side, I'd say, because that's the the place that most instructors are going to be comfortable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so you can start with that. And then when you're doing a, a rotating curriculum or even a nested rotating curriculum, one of the important parts of it is that the the segment in terms of age groups has got to be um, quite narrow because you want a flat syllabus within that so that you don't want any one point that builds on the last bit or has a um, requires the last bit for you to be able to execute it. So you want quite a flat a flat syllabus if you like for the technical aspect and then you can start to divide it up and once you've got your list and once you've divided it up then you can start to plan out that um, it may be that on week one you do the technique that's for the next grading but you also mix in technique two and technique three and then the following week your rotation might be the the same techniques that you've got for your next grading but then instead of two and three you're doing um, four and five Mm. And then you're able to rotate them in and you just keep them rotating round. And then when it gets to the second um, rotation in terms of um, you've, you've had your three to four month block and then you've moved on to the next block, then you might be doing technique two all the time and then you're rotating everything else in. So you can do that for the uh, technical aspect, but then you can also do it um, 
similar for the other aspects too, like the physical aspects. And if you have some um, key skills stuff that you like to do with the children, then you can rotate them in too. Um, or you can keep that system totally separate from your grid and if you want and just award something within a class um, based on the talks that you're having with the kids, you know, for a month period or whatever you rotate through within that. So definitely um, look at the technical first because that's where everybody's comfort zone is. And if you get your head around it on a technical level, then you'll be able to look at doing the rotations with the physical aspects too. Awesome. Cool. Um, so I, I wanted to also talk about some other things you've covered on your, on your website. Um, fundamental movement skills, and you also mentioned functional movement patterns. So what, what are the f- fundamental movement skills? What's the logic behind that? And, and um, how does it work into your program? So the, the fundamental movement skills, uh, movement competency is seen as one of the foundations of making sure that as children go between sports, that they have a, a, a minimum level of movement competency, if you like. Mm-hmm. So that they're more likely to have a go at other sports because they're already competent movers. Now, it's also been shown in, in some studies as well to equate to if they've got better comp- uh, levels of competency of movement skills at the uh, the base end, that they're in sport for longer as well. And that's one of the main factors behind physical literacy as well, that you know, th- you've got this base level of movement skills that they can apply to lots of different sports, if you like. Now, depending on um, which models you look at, they can be split up into quite a few different areas or three main areas, Or, but it covers all the basics and then some will include things like swimming or uh, moving on um, ice as well, yeah. uh, could be one of them too. Um, but basically, it, you're looking at your running, jumping, hopping, skipping, um, all the basic things that you do within physical activity, um, whether that's games or whether that's sports. Um, so that we in Maple, we split it down into um, eight physical areas, um, things like speed and agility and strength and power, and um, and there's eight in total that we use. Um, that gives us them eight then to rotate in via the nested rotating curriculum too, to make sure everybody's getting exposure to all the different areas, and the exposure to that comes through um, usually for this younger age group, it's delivered through games. Okay. Now, as the kids get older and they move up to the six to 12 year old group, then you can do more specific exercises with them um, that are more seen as traditional exercise, if you like. But at the younger years, we tend to hide it all within games, really. But when I first started looking at the teaching this age group, I, I was looking at um, originally the Little Dragons uh, model. And back in the time, we knew a lot less then. Um, and we just used to throw in a, a, an obstacle course every now and again type thing and then teach the rest of it, you know, similar to how we taught, taught in the other classes. Um, but over time, we've developed that now so that the games and things that we use have purpose and they're in line with the rotation system. So that rather than just throwing in a random obstacle course because it'll keep the kids entertained, um, everything's um, more pur- purpose-driven. Um, not to the children. They're just playing games and having fun and doing some techniques, you know. Um, And what we tend to do as well is within the class setup, um, when we're delivering the sessions, we rotate between a technical objective and a physical objective every five minutes with the three to fours and five to sixes. So that 
what it also does as well as giving a lot of variety and not requiring much focus from the children for long periods of time. It also makes the pace of the class really um, quite quick when you're delivering it too. Yeah. And that makes you um, look more passionate and convincing when you're delivering the session because you've yeah. got to get through these to segments. The parents, what, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, not just the parents, but the children as well. Yeah. Uh, and for the coaches, it's more exciting because you're bang, 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 bang through yeah. these sections. And before you know it, you've finished the class and you're like, wow. Um, and, but it keeps the pace and that's important too, but it also falls in line then with the, uh, what is it? Uh, no laps, no lines, no lectures. So we, we emphasize this a lot, especially with our junior coaches. Mm-hmm. Don't mm-hmm. sit there talking at them for two, three, four, five minutes. Um, a lot of the benefit that they get from this activity is through the physical movement. Yeah. Uh, and just sitting there for longer than 30 to 60 seconds is just too much. It's just too much. Yeah. So making sure that you're not lecturing them, um, you're giving the basic instructions and then you're just letting them have a go and they'll get it wrong. But a lot of the time they'll learn from the mistakes and there's an element of discovery in there and an element of them listening to what you're saying and then executing on that. You know, by the time you've talked to them for two or three minutes, they've switched off like two and a half minutes ago. So we tend to keep it quick like that so that it follows on. And yeah, the no, uh, no laps. So try not to throw in there random exercises that have no cause to be in there, really. You've got no purpose for them. Years ago, uh, a strength and conditioning coach told me, uh, uh, if you're delivering something within a class and you don't know why you're delivering it, take it out. Don't deliver it. You know, put mm. something in there that you know the purpose of and you're mm-hmm. working to an ob- uh, towards an objective. So no lines, no laps, uh, and no lectures, or the lines thing, sorry, yeah. So <laughs> in martial arts, I don't know what it's like in the US, but in the UK, uh, we've definitely been prone to, I remember when I first started uh, learning in 1990, you know, we'd have lines of 10 people or 15 people in line waiting, standing around, you know, yep. to kick a pad. Um, it just kills the momentum of what the children are trying to do. Uh, And if you don't give children something specific to do, or you're creating a structure that allows them to do, you know, move towards what you want them to do and give them something specific to work out, then they'll find something to do. And it won't be something that you like. (laughs) Yep. You know, they'll be pushing each other or playing with the toes or, you know, whatever it is, something not constructive. (laughs) Right. Right. Yep. And I always tried, (laughs) I've done that too, (laughs) but it was just me and there was was 20 kids in class and I don't have an assistant (laughs) instructor. What do you do? Um, Well, you can have them do drills, but (coughs) sometimes I'd have them be in the line. I'd be like, all right, you have to do jumping jacks five seconds later. Half the kids aren't doing jumping jacks anymore. And I have to, you you just have to structure it better. (laughs) I think we have this assumption that the children won't be able to hold pads from each other from a, an earliest age until, yeah. you know, 10 years old or something. But yeah. that's quite far from the truth. But it's yeah. just holding a pad is just another skill that they mm. need to learn. Um, the same, same as any other skill that they, they need to learn, uh, uh, you yeah. know, across their martial arts journey. Yeah. Uh, but it can be taught and you can have them holding pads, you know, at five, six years old for each other. Yeah. Um, still under supervision. You know, you've got to have good positioning so you can see what's going on. A little bit of encouragement, a little bit of encouragement on the kickers, a little bit of praise for the pad holders. Um, but it can be taught same as anything else. But I think I've got an article on uh, Q-Jump, um, 
uh, Q-Busters as well. And it's quite useful to try remove that uh, as much as possible, that element of queuing. Now, don't get me wrong, with the three to four-year-old classes, we still have an element of queuing because at that age, they're still learning the social aspects of taking turns. Yep. <laughs> uh, so we'll intentionally leave that in there in certain places. But by the time they get to the five to six, um, year old class and the six to twelves. We try to do away with that. The, one of the times that you will get away with it is where they're engaged in a, a team activity and they're all cheering for each other and then engaged in the activity, even when they're not physically running. You know, so in like a, a relay type option where somebody's running out, doing something, running back, and then the next person's going. As long as you've got, you know, only three or four in a line, then they'll stay engaged because they're next and they're rooting for the team. So you've got engagement there already. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, if you can, no lines, no laps, no lectures. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. No lines, laps, or lectures. <laughs> awesome. That's cool. Um, yeah, on to the, to the point about kids holding pads <coughs> and um, having some sort of leadership role amongst themselves. Like, as long as they're up at the right, you know, six, around six or seven or, or, or maybe even five, depending on the kid. You really, you, you, it's really in your mind as an instructor, I found, because many years ago I used to do the whole having the kids in the line if I didn't have a, um, assistant instructor and all that. You can trust the kids to do that. And then you can just use, um, the occasional, uh, reminder for them to keep them, um, you know, where to hold the pad or, or, or whatever. They, they need to learn those skills anyways, but they're, perfectly capable of learning those skills. And it's okay if one or two classes is not perfect pad holding. You know, of it's course, not going to hurt in the long run. It's not going to hurt the skill progression uh, of the kids. No, I think one of the problems sometimes with um, the average age of the uh, participants in martial art is coming down. It's been coming down for a long time. Um, you know, now we're down to three-year-old. We teach down to three-year-old now. And that's the sort of age where they're at the sort of minimum age where you can get them in their class and they can operate on themselves. And we'll still get the odd student that comes in and um, they don't feel confident enough. They've got maybe attachment problems sometimes, or mm. there's some other issues and they don't feel confident in going into the class. And we just say, come back in six months and try again. Um, but yeah, that's the sort of minimum age that we tend to go from. Um, you could probably do younger if, if you do parent participation, but at both our venues, we've always had the focus around removing parents from the room. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have parents in a side room where we've got like a big screen TV linked to a CCTV camera. Um, so the parents can see the children, but the children don't interact with the parents. Mm. Because we want the children to start to build some independence and, and follow instruction and, and not at this age, they're going to be doing things for the parents anyway. Um, yeah. I remember going to see my daughter swim when I was younger and I could see her through the window. You know, she's like waving and drowning at the same time. Um, <laughs> you, you, you're going to get an aspect of that where you put the parent in that room. Yeah. Um, but if the kid knows that the the parents are watching, then they can chat about the session when they come out afterwards. But you tend to find well-meaning parents trying to micromanage the kids sometimes when we want an element of um, when we give them some instructions that they're learning to, you know, execute on them instructions, if you like. And there's an element of, of discovery within the activities too. And besides that, sometimes because it's an activity that the parents have not had much experience with, they're like some of the instructors that have not taught children before and the expectations are possibly too high sometimes. Yeah. 
And this is this goes back to what you were talking about before. You know, the kids are going to make mistakes. They're going to mess up. They're not always going to do as at all. They're going to fall on the floor. And that's okay. Um, a lot of the time, we just need to set expectations um, to what to expect when the kids get in there, both for the parents, but for the for the coaches as well. Yeah, absolutely. I, I we didn't when I was teaching um, in an, like a, a location working for another school. Um, we didn't have a room like that. that's really good though because it it solves a lot of problems. It helps the kids with independence, but it also helps the kids not to like defer to their parents instead of the instructor. It helps the parents not be like coaching and barking at the kids in the middle of class <laughs> over the coach. Right? <laughs> um, but we didn't have that. So one of my you know I couldn't stop the parents. We would sometimes have conferences with the parents, or I'd have the program manager talk to one. Um, but I couldn't. I couldn't. Um, put them in a different room to watch. So what I did was I always had most of class with the kids facing exactly the opposite way of the parents. Yeah, yeah. So the parents could see me teaching, but the, the, but the kids cannot see their parents and the parents cannot, can't make eye contact with the kids. So. It's a good idea for those that, um, you know, don't have uh, a separate room that they can put the parents in. Um, definitely your coaching position is always important anyway, to make sure you can see a monitor and, um, recognize when people are doing good mm. and basically give praise where it's appropriate. Um, but um, definitely from a, a parental intervention point of view, um, <laughs> it's a good idea to have them at the back. We always had it so that uh, traditionally, wherever you were at teaching, that the door and uh, the, the students were facing you and you were facing the door. So the yeah. students were distracted by somebody coming in and out, but you could see people coming in and out. Yeah. So putting the parents at the back makes sense as well if they need to go in and out, in and out too. <laughs> yep. Yeah. It, it just works better that way. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, if, if the parents want to sit apart, get a suit on. <laughs> yeah. And I even noticed, I even noticed with the kids being, uh, I guess, perpendicular to, to where their parents are sitting, that they can still, that they still sometimes catch them out of the side of their eyes and they'll look. And they're much more likely, even though they're kind of facing away from the door, they're much more likely to look at the door if um, if it opens or something like that, um, so it just it works better to face them one hundred percent away. You always get some as well that are, are, are trying to be helpful, but you know if the kid looks like they're not focusing, then they're barking at the kid and and yeah, <laughs> and half the time it's not needed. You know, it's like he's yep. four years old. He's yeah. still okay. <laughs> I had a I had a oh man, some of these pairs. Oh my god. Um, and they didn't stay either. She's, she asked uh, my program amateur while I was teaching. She's like, uh, can they can they diagnose him with autism? I was like, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> We're not clinicians. I've got, I've um, got an excellent um, tip for children that once you've been teaching kids a long time, you, you'll, you'll know when you get some children in. Uh, if they're on yeah. the, uh, they may be on the spectrum, they may not be, but yeah. they may have other complications. Um, but the way that we tend to deal with it is the same way. And I try to teach this to the instructors. All you have to do is when you suspect the, the, you know, the child's showing symptoms in class that you recognize um, through your experience, all you do is you say to the parent, um, I've noticed that little Johnny has been struggling with um, this again today. And then you just describe the symptoms and then you just say, um, you know, how are they doing at school and other activities? And then just like in a, a sales call, you just shut your mouth and then wait for the parent to speak. And then 
probably 90% of the time they'll say, oh, we've recognized this or, oh, we've had him tested for this or, oh, school have mentioned it before. But you you just be quiet. And then I'd say 90% of the time they, they'll help you with that then. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Without I, you having to diagnose them. <laughs> yeah, I can't do that. <laughs> I'm not trained no, to do that. No. I'm, doing a, I'm doing this um, a, a professional doctorate and I still won't dream of uh, doing <laughs> right. that. Right. <laughs> and then after the class, because I, I didn't even know about this until she had left. And then she came, she's after the class, she, she she's like, she's like, Oh, he's not, he can't pay attention. And he's a, he's a little bit flighty, but he's doing, he's doing fine. Like it wasn't like abnormal. Um, he's like, Oh, he's just not paying attention. And he's like, how, 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 you know, where do you think he's going to be in, in four weeks? And I was like, I don't know. <laughs> he's four years old. I don't know. A lot of time with that. I can't fix, from- like, I can't fix him in four weeks. He's <laughs> going to be better. He's not going to be fixed in four weeks. Like, it's, he's four years old. Like, chill out. <laughs> yeah. Um, different expectations sometimes. But at the same time, as well, if it's a child that has been with you um, for a little bit as well, you can always reflect back to how they were when they first came in. You know, even if it's only been, say, three months or something, there's usually uh, been an improvement within that three months. Even if some of that has just come from that person um, being able to relate to the people in the class, including the coach, being used to the environment, um, you'll you'll get some positive change uh, in, in a sort of three-month period after that anyway. So just yeah. reminding them of what the child was like when they first came in. Uh, is a good place to start as well without you having to go oh yes we will fix them in four four weeks time <laughs> yeah she she wanted like a timeline i was like i can't give you a timeline in six weeks or so i mean he's definitely going to be better than when he came in but it's not, it's not they 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 i think they came for oh maybe a month and then they just dropped out we didn't see him anymore what you tend to find is depending where you are on the um on the spectrum of uh, you know uh, a more developing the child point of view at this side to the ultra competitive um, clubs that you get at the other side. Um, what you tend to find is that wherever you are on that spectrum, that as people will come through the door, you will attract people that are attracted to the way that you do things, your club's values and mission and, and vision, and yep. that you'll push away the people that aren't. Um, so that first sort of three months, if you like, that it usually is sometimes the students in there and parents that you lose and it won't be a bad thing. You know, you're not the right club for them. Um, yeah. I mean, I'm all for retention. And um, r- while I still obviously do marketing because I need to, um, I really lean on having good retention, really. It makes me a little bit lazy with the marketing. Um, yeah. At the same time as well, I know that, I'm attracting the people that are in line. It's not the good people, the bad people, or any other people. It's the people that are in line with what we're trying to achieve. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so the the functional movement patterns, we talked about fundamental movement skills. What yeah. are the functional movement patterns? Is that something you do with the older kids? Is that where that comes in? Uh, you can start to do, in terms of this sort of physical activities, we are, we'll have basic ways of doing some of the uh, basic movement patterns that we're talking about with, we can do them with the five to sixes. For instance, um, if you do normal press-ups and you just have the normal way of doing press-ups, you'll get a lot of these kind of kids flapping the body about and stuff. Yeah. Um, but what we tend to do, we have got little um, 
abbreviated ways of delivering the different exercises. So for instance, with the children, I, I borrowed this, don't tell anybody, I borrowed this from an old uh, Thai boxing instructor that used to teach me years ago. It's that press-ups off, lying on, the, uh, on your front with your hands under your chin. You press off the floor, you come back down, you put your hands back under your chin. So there's mm -hmm. no cheating of the movement. Every time you've got to lift your body off the floor, and yeah. they get to come back down to this position again. So we use that for press-ups. And we've got other movements like with a squat. Um, <laughs> when we looked at the way the teenagers uh, that we've had for quite a while were doing the squats, it was awful technique-wise. <laughs> um, just poor movement patterns, if you like, that uh, yeah. were embedded in. So what we get them to do is we put two of the sort of smarty pads on the floor um, or we use the um, hanging bags that are just laid down at the side and we get the kids to touch the bum on the pads and then stand back up. So just something as basic as that, just a small adaptation can provide a, an anchor point, if you like, for them to look at. Um, and you just bake it within the exercise then, and then they just build good form over time then. So you, yeah. you, if these movement patterns are sometimes called uh, functional movements or primal movements, um, but the, your, your basic um, uh, squatting, um, hip hinging, bending from the waist, um, pressing, pulling, you know, all the basic sort of exercises that you'd, you'd go through as part of a, a complete PT exercise, but not necessarily with equipment. Yeah. Um, so it's still, when it comes to equipment, we still use uh, some equipment for strength-based stuff, even for the younger kids, um, but it's not always overtly a, a sort of, you know, you're going to stand there and do 10 of these. We'll still put it within the game if we can. Um, yeah. We use medicine balls um leather mm. medicine balls so if kids drop them on the feet or anything there's there's no harm done yeah um, and we could get them um, you know doing basic throws and stuff like that for power type movements too which is cool um as long as they're not you know throwing at each other <laughs> yeah one thing we used to do with the push-up problem uh with the really young kids is we called them lion push-ups and mm. so you would they would have to start with everything chest chin on the ground yeah. and then they had to uh they kept the body on the ground and this is for really young kids really that are still yeah. trying to develop the strength here <clears throat> you they push themselves all the way up in the air and roar like a yeah, like yeah. A, almost an, an upward dog position yeah but you're they're causing them to use their shoulder and and uh, uh arm strength to press themselves up at that point now when you're you know I, I guess if you have a really weak six or seven year old, you know, that's good too. But if you're with them, what I would do is get them started in planks first. Yeah. Yeah. Them, we do that as part of the stable uh, and then be like, all right, hold the plank position. Now try to do a push, you know, and of course you still get the kids that do the, the whole, you know, yeah, yeah, thing exactly. with their head. Body <laughs> yep. What we did for the uh, younger children as well. I was looking around for, some strength-based stuff. It sounds funny saying it. Some strength-based exercises for three to four-year-olds. Um, and I, I did find some um, that were reasonable, but the best people to look at for this stuff was, pardon me, the gymnastics. Yes. So with the gymnastics, they train the kids from a young age because it's an early, early adaptation sport and they the perform at a higher level earlier on. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time as well, they have um, these core holds um, at basically different body positions that they do um, for the children. Mm. So we included them within. So when we've got the strength and speed and power and everything else, that's for the five to six-year-olds and above that there's eight 
of them. Whereas with the three to four year olds, we don't do power and speed and stuff like that. But there's four. But one of them is strength. Because uh, the research suggests that there's there's never an age where um, developing strength is not a good thing. You know, that's age appropriate. Not talking about lifting weights and stuff. But um, so the the basic body shapes that we took from gymnastics, they were really useful. Um, and I think we we added a couple on ourselves to make them up to weight. But uh, yeah, that, they're really useful for the younger kids, even for the five to six year olds, just to build. Like you said, you start them off in the plank position, but these positions that they can hold just to build that core strength, if you like, um, is always going to be useful because everything's built on that. Absolutely, those are awesome. Um, so, well, that that was awesome. Um, I don't really have any more questions to ask, but. Uh, where can people find you? Um, uh, Facebook. Um, I, I'm on Twitter, but I tend to keep that for my academic um, stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't post a lot on there, but I communicate yeah. with the, uh, other um, people in academia. But definitely the website, which is uh, maplemartialarts.com. Mm-hmm. Um, if you sign up for the newsletter there as well, then I send that out on a, a semi-regular basis, depending on what I've got on, as well as the um, the the two full-time venues and this professional doctorate, and still coaching a bit myself. I mentor some other coaches. I work with governing bodies, and I've got three children, two of them below four. So that tends to uh, <laughs> a chunk of my time. Busy but, man, yeah. Yeah, definitely the the Facebook page. I've got a Facebook group on there as well. Um, that you'd be able to find if you if you Google Maple Martial Arts um, or if you Facebook search for Google Martial Arts. But Maple MapleMartialArts.com um, is probably the best place. And I've got loads of articles on there, um, probably about 25, and I'm trying to produce one every two weeks. Sometimes it'll be a bit more on the business side, but more often than not, it'll be based around retaining students and delivering a product and service that's in line with their needs and wants. Awesome. Great. Well, thank you for coming on. I hope we can no do problem. this again sometime. I love talking about <laughs> this side of stuff. So 